from Eden by Fry, Volume 6, The Tape, Towards Italy. Tuesday I travel on, taking an early morning train that departs at 7.21 towards Italy. The journey, the tape tells me, is fairly pleasant, with the exception of one incident. This sits ingrained on my brain, and whilst most of the other experiences of that August are a haze, with only the occasional moment or image in any kind of focus, this one is sharp and clear, and it still makes me squirm to this day. I was tired. I had slept for two hours again. Monday night we decided to go to the cinema. Anne and some of her friends had gone to see some American movie I evidently did not rate or care about. And I had gone to see Le Grand Bleu, one of the most stunningly beautiful films I've ever seen. I now hear myself rave. And I remember that vividly too, though not only from this screening, but from another much more thrilling one later in Paris. Jean-Marc Barr. He is fantastic. He certainly is a name to remember. After the cinema, a crepe, and then to bed really late. So, with very little sleep, I'm on a train that is completely full, though I do have a seat by the window near the end of the carriage. I mostly daydream and possibly doze off a bit now and then, and everything is going fine until the train stops at a spot where there seems to be nothing at all. It's not a town. It's not a village. It's barely a hamlet. There's a platform and a small building, and there are some signs that to me in my state, which is not comatose, but not alert either, are meaningless. On board come two customs officers. I see them appear at the other end of the carriage, quite far away from where I am, and as I look up at them, I semi-consciously give a sigh of profoundest ennui just exactly at the moment that one of them catches my eye. I think nothing more of this for the next five minutes or so and continue gazing out of the window, thinking my nondescript thoughts. My sigh and my facial expression had lasted for maybe a second, but I do remember distinctly allowing that gut response to just come out in aversion to officialdom, almost, but almost not quite, wanting to show them I held them in a sizable degree of post-juvenile contempt, not as human beings, of course, but as uniforms holding up the train's so effortless glide through the artificially delineated countryside. The two officials make their way through the carriage, checking passports, not hassling anyone. 
they work quite fast and I'm almost beginning to like them for being so efficient and quick about their monotonous task. Then they get to me. I am sitting by my window, resting my head on my hand, and I look up at them extremely tired and bored. I am wearing all black. I am 24 with peroxide dyed hair. I had reacted to spotting them from a distance with a look on my face and body language that to them must have signalled not so much ennui as trouble. I am their prime suspect, certainly of the carriage, probably of the train, possibly of the day, maybe the month. Granted, it could have been worse. They could have taken me off the train and subjected me to a strip search. They didn't. They went through everything I had on me. They opened my luggage. I seem to recall this being a hold or bag, searched through my clothes, opened my toiletry bag. They found a tiny tube of something and demanded to know what it was. It was a cream for mosquito bites. They thought that hard to believe, which was ridiculous because it was clearly labelled, smelt like medicine, and we were on the border to Italy in the summer. My brain was not willing to argue. My Italian register brought forth zanzare. It took about 20 minutes. It felt like two hours. It was not even humiliating as much as it was unnecessary, and I felt vindictive. This, I now know, is what profiling feels like if you match the profile. This is what being exposed to low-level authority feels like if it turns against you. Today, I understand people who complain about stop and search policies or who are tired of being the ones picked out at airport entry points because of their skin tone or what they are wearing. It was, by comparison, harmless. And yet, I wanted it just to end. I felt exposed and hard done by. And I was. Still, I had never in my life purchased or carried any illegal substance. And so I had nothing on me and they did not find anything. They left, we departed. I arrived in Milan where I did something really stupid. I got off the train and went into the station to look at the board where all the trains were displayed. Vicenza, this told me, would next be up at 2 p.m. It was getting towards half one, but for some to me now unfathomable reason, not trusting that intelligence, I decided to go to the information desk to make sure. There was only one window open, money exchange and information. After queuing for half an hour, I arrived at said window only to find that this was the wrong one. 
Nonetheless, they asked me what I wanted to know, and I told them I wanted to know when the next train would leave for Vicenza. At 2 p.m., they said, glancing idly at a timetable. I ran as best I could with my back to the platform, for I saw the train pull out of the station. What, I wonder, was that all about? Sometimes I just didn't trust myself at all. I phoned my friend Stefano in Vicenza from a public phone box, which cost me 600 lira, I record, to tell him I'd be arriving one hour later. Stefano, once I'd got there and had settled, took me to the beautiful piazza in the town centre, where we also met up with our mutual friend, Giovanni. Thus begins about a week in Vicenza, and at the hands of Stefano's mum, I tell the tape, I'm being fed to the point of bursting. I spend one day in Venice, mostly at the Peggy Guggenheim collection, and, passing one of the many small shops, I see a leather jacket I particularly like the look of. I go inside and casually ask the shop assistant how much it costs, there being no price tag. Five million lira, she tells me, which at the time is about £2,000. I see, I say, as matter-of-factly, also I think, as I can, and I do the unnecessary thing of looking at it in a little more detail to signal that I'm really not perturbed at all by the price. I'm really perturbed by the price. Then I do that even more unnecessary thing of looking around the shop a bit further before I leave, just to make sure the middle-aged woman whom I will never meet again in my life, and who has long since sussed that I'm in the wrong shop, understands that the prices here are really no big deal for me at all. They are a really big deal for me. Vicenza, I tell myself of the future, is incredibly quiet, but I like the Teatro Olimpico calling it stunning. Built like a Greek arena, but all indoors, I describe it as absolutely beautiful and venture that it may be the only one of its kind in Italy, though where I get that from, or whether it is true, I don't know. At one point, we go to a party together, which I confide to the tape, reminds me of the time when we, I and my Krupandlis from the Gymnasium Münchenstein had our parties. The ease the freedom. I feel charmed, I put on record, and delighted by the friendliness of these people. I also go back to Venice on various occasions, there can't have been that many considering how long I was in Vicenza for, and on one of these get to see a Pier Paolo Pasolini film at the festival apparently as a matter of extreme luck. How I managed to get there and get there on time, I will never know, but it worked, and it worked to the minute. I seem to have walked into some post office, presumably having got to the Lido first, and asked where the auditorium was that I needed to get to, only to find that it just so happened to be that particular building where the film was about to start. What exactly the film was, I don't put on record.
there are two more moments that stick in my memory from Vicenza. And although I don't talk about them on the tape, I am as certain as I can be that they belong to that same trip. I've since been back to Vicenza a number of times, and there was most likely at least one more visit within the next year or two. But the way things fit together, especially with the amount of time I seem to have on my own while staying with Stefan and his family, who are presumably out working, makes me think that this is all one occasion. The first one involved me attempting to make coffee with one of these typical two-part Italian coffee jars. I took the thing which I myself had just used and which was still hot off the hob and wearing oven gloves unscrewed the top from the bottom. At that point there was an almighty bang and ground coffee splattered all over the immaculately clean small town kitchen covering every available surface in fine specks of wet brown sediment. Stefano was grace personified and just helped me clean up before his mum got back home. The other one takes place in Vicenza town. I go up to a small church that is either closed or about to close and there's a young good-looking guard at the gate. This makes me think it might have been a small museum or some other historic site since churches didn't usually have guards as far as I can remember. He wears a uniform of the nondescript charcoal or dark grey variety and to my surprise he opens the door for me and shows me around. We get to the end of a short tour at the lowest part of the building, a crypt or a vault of which I do not recall what it contained. And there is this moment that stays in my mind. This moment when something is meant to happen and nothing happens. I wasn't sure then what it was that was meant to happen. And I'm not even entirely sure today. Looking back, I wonder, was he about to make a move on me? If so, why didn't he? I was then, I now see, quite attractive, though I didn't think so then. We were alone. He had the keys to the building. He had most probably locked the front door. I liked him. I think I would have wanted him to make a move. I certainly wouldn't have made a move first, though. I was on foreign territory. I was far too shy and too gauche. And also nowhere near conceited enough. I never assumed people fancied me enough to want to make a move on me. Sometimes until long after they did. Maybe I was too aloof too. With hindsight, maybe I understand why he might not have made a move. Even if he had wanted to and had felt that I possibly wanted him to, and the conditions were well nigh perfect for, well, at least a kiss, just to see how that would feel and where it would lead. I had a barrier up then, practically always. I was not just aloof, but also distant, remote. What a pity.
The moment lasted not very long until it was over and he led me back upstairs into the Italian sunshine. I thanked him. I said goodbye. And I wondered, what was that? Did I miss something here? This feeling, this question, did I just miss something here that was happening or should have been happening or could have been happening? If only I'd been alert to it, perhaps less naive, perhaps less insecure, perhaps more attuned. It followed me for years, for decades even, until recently. It doesn't do so much anymore. I miss things occasionally still, but not quite so much as a rule. And I make mistakes, of course, who doesn't? And sometimes I'm just not brave enough. In fact, I often, I think, am probably just not quite brave enough. And then on the way onwards in Milan, I actually went to some nondescript building in the outskirts of somewhere and tried to talk to somebody from the Italian TV network Rete Italia. What on earth about? I have no idea.